You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual Are you gay? That's one of those questions, and there aren't many out there like it, but it's one of those questions that a refusal to answer that direct question is to effectively answer that direct question. Because if you ask somebody if they're gay and they refuse to answer the question, well, no straight person has ever refused to answer that question ever. Straight people wouldn't hesitate to answer that question. It would occur to them not to answer the question, I'm straight. No, I'm not gay. So when you ask somebody, are you gay? And they say, oh, I'm not going to answer that question or that's a rude question or I – don't believe in labels. They've also effectively answered the question in the affirmative. Yes, they're gay. Only a gay person, closeted gay person or a gay person who doesn't want to be out to you, has ever answered, are you gay, with, I'm not going to answer that question. No straight person has ever answered it that way. So, are you gay? Refusal to answer is to kind of double backflip, answer it. Bank shot answer. And the answer is yes. I was thinking about that are you gay question. Mike Pence was being interviewed by George Stephanopoulos on this week on ABC over the weekend about Indiana's new religious freedom bill that Mike Pence signed into law at a signing ceremony surrounded by monks and nuns and right-wing anti-gay religious psychotic bigots, people who've argued that gay people don't have a right to exist, much less a right to buy a fucking cupcake in a Walmart. And six times George Stephanopoulos asked Mike Pence if he thought it should be legal to discriminate against gays and lesbians in Indiana, if Indianans should have the right to discriminate against gays and lesbians. And six times Mike Pence refused to answer the question, which is like refusing to answer the are you gay question effectively to answer the fucking question. Yes, of course he believes that people in Indiana should have the right to discriminate against gays and lesbians. That's why he signed the fucking law legalizing anti-gay discrimination in the state of Indiana, anti-lesbian, anti-bi, all of it, sign the law because he believes that they should have that right. He just gave them that right. Gays and lesbians are not protected in Indiana under the state's existing anti-discrimination statutes. So it was already illegal to discriminate against gays and lesbians in Indiana. Now it's just extra legal to discriminate against gays and lesbians in Indiana. And the law, religious freedom, means that you can discriminate against Basically, anybody anywhere in Indiana, so long as you can point to your sincerely held religious beliefs, which is a very soft and squishy target. How do you know someone's religious beliefs are sincerely held? Because they sincerely hold them, period, the end. It's very circular, the logic there. So in theory, people could refuse service to Jews, unmarried couples. They could refuse to rent hotel rooms to interracial couples. There are still religious Sincerely held religious beliefs, people out there of faith who believe that interracial relationships are sinful. We forget now because this is America and we don't teach history, but we forget now that a lot of people who opposed interracial marriage, its legalization, grounded that opposition in their sincerely held religious beliefs. And now in Indiana, people who cling to that belief that interracial marriages are sinful are free to discriminate against people or in interracial relationships, not even gay ones, straight ones, free to discriminate. But the laws, but the law was specifically drafted to target LGBT people. 
That is why at the signing ceremony, Governor Mike Pence was surrounded by a clump of anti-gay bigots. I don't know what to call, like, you know, a murder of crows, a cha-cha of twinks. I don't know what you call a a big group of anti-gay bigots, an FRC of anti-gay bigots, uh, morbidly obsessed with other people's sex lives and their genitals and what they're doing with them of anti-gay bigots. But there, there needs to be a term. Maybe you guys could call in a few, make a suggestion. What I love about this story, and it's blown up, it's exploded in Indiana's face. There have been other states that have toyed with these religious freedom bills, even other states that have passed them. But it's really blown up in Indiana's face, in the governor's face. We've reached this tipping point where what was okay maybe two years ago or ten years ago suddenly not so okay anymore. Angie's List is no longer building a $40 million new facility and call center in Indiana. Props to Angie's List. Yelp is threatening not to expand in Indiana. The NCAA, which is hosting the Final Four in Indiana, which is some basketball game, I think, coming up in the next couple weeks. Who knows? All the straight guys are talking about it. I don't care. Let's talk about Sondheim. Uh, They're making noises about not hosting future tournaments in Indiana. And this is just gathering steam. Apple. Apple. Biggest market share. Biggest market capitalization of any company on the planet. The head of Apple is screaming and yelling about the bill, has an op-ed in the Washington Post, and is threatening not to do business in Indiana. Indiana State Universities are saying that they're going to have a harder time recruiting qualified people for positions, for professorships, to teach. Because some people who teach are queer people and some people who teach are straight people who like queer people and may not want to relocate to an anti-gay hate state, which Indiana became the moment Mike Pence signed the bill. If you haven't seen the interview, you should go watch the interview. This is – people are now saying that pence should be a verb. To pence something is to go into TV and just fucking eat shit, just to go tits up, to pence it. It reminds me of doing the full Ginsburg during the Monica Lewinsky, Bill Clinton scandal, which really should be the Bill Clinton scandal, not the Monica Lewinsky scandal. Lewinsky's lawyer, uh, William Ginsburg, did all the Sunday talk shows one day, all of them, which was this new thing that had never happened. No one had ever done all of them, run the table. And that became known as doing the full Ginsburg, to do all the Sunday shows. That's what we got out of the Bill Clinton blowjob scandal was the full Ginsburg became a thing. People still throw that around. Pence now after Mike Pence's idiotic, stammering, hemming, hawing, lying, bullshitting performance on this week with George Stephanopoulos, Pence should now be a verb just to fucking eat shit on national television. You penced the shit out of that interview, Mike Pence. But what I love about this story, and I hate this story, I I hate what's being done to LGBT people in Indiana. It's very sad. Uh, We do seem to be going through some sort of insane legislative backlash. You know, a couple of years ago, people were talking about how all these Republican uh, legislatures, Republican governors, and Republicans control uh, a majority of state legislators and governors' mansions across the country. Just a couple of years ago, they were enacting all of this really rapidly anti-choice anti-access to birth control, anti-woman legislation, the war on women. Remember that? And there was some sort of grumbling uh, or observing from the sidelines that what did it say? That there are all these attacks on women from these right-wing Republican legislators and very few on queer people, that suddenly people were better with queer people than they were with women. And yet here we are now, where there are now 80 bills moving through state legislatures attacking LGBT people. We have arrived at the panicky anti-queer backlash It's not a coincidence that we've arrived at this legislative backlash just as the Supreme Court is on the verge of legalizing same-sex marriage across the country. 
So this is very sad. However, I kind of like this story. And, and here's what I like about this story. And I've been saying this for a while. We've reached a tipping point where homophobia hurts the homophobes. Used to be that you could really go out there and beat up a queer with impunity, whether you're doing it on a playground, whether you were doing it in a legislature, whether you're doing it as the administrator of a high school, you could get away with it. Because if you were the high school principal and you were being shitty to some queer kid about prom or about being out or about forming a GSA, that queer kid probably wasn't out to their family. If they were out to their family, the family was embarrassed and ashamed and wouldn't stand up for that kid. Now, principal beats up the queer kid. The first people in the principal's face typically these days are the family. Mom and dad show up screaming bloody murder about the way their queer kid is being treated and they're not going to stand for it. Principal can't get away with it anymore. And some principals don't realize this yet. Mike Pence is the governor equivalent of that principal of that high school. He thought that he still lived in a state, lived in a world, lived in a country where you could just, for cheap political gain, drag the queers out into the public square and beat the fuck out of them and you would pay no price because you're just beating up a queer. Who cares? And Mike Pence is paying a steep price. And Indiana is paying a steep price. This is the new order. of We don't live in a world without homophobes, but we live in a world where homophobes and transphobes can and will be held to account, where they just can't do it with impunity anymore. They can do it. Sometimes they can even get away with it. The law passed. But they don't get away without consequences for them. The homophobes also pay a price. You're seeing this in Christian churches. Right, Right-wing fundamentalist Christians worked for 40 years to make Christianity synonymous with anti-gay bigotry. That's why it's not a far leap to their claim that to act on their faith, they need to be able to discriminate against gay people because really that's all they got, right? You can be Bristol fucking Palin and have kids out of wedlock and be a teen mom and rattle around drunk as a skunk and get into fistfights, but you're a good Christian, Bristol Palin, because you hate the fags, right? When you post-gay marriage, you are right with God. When the single tenet of your faith becomes how hard you hate gay people, then being able to act on that hatred becomes very, very important to the expression of your faith. And the delicious thing about this state of affairs is it's really hurting churches. Church attendance is dropping. People are more reluctant than ever to describe themselves as Christian to pollsters or friends and family because they dread being perceived as anti-gay bigots. Another great example of this, the Harold Bolton December 17, 2014, a reader sent this to me, sent in the clipping. I appreciate clippings, just like my mom used to send. Uh, front page, above the fold, big headline, church in Alexandria to close its doors. Alexandria First United Methodist Church, built in 1901, closes its doors December 17, 2014. Why did this century-old church close? The pastor fired the choir director because he was gay and the congregation walked. The pastor claimed that he closed the doors because of the shrinking congregation, but it was just a quinky dink that the congregation began to shrink after he fired the gay choir director. Wasn't a quinky dink. People walked out. It was an organized protest against the church's treatment of this gay choir director in the Methodist church where gay people are allowed to be gay people in theory. But this pastor didn't like that fired this dude, and killed his own church. This in its own small way is what is going on 
broadly in the culture that the homophobes are now when they attack queer people shooting themselves in their own feet, that they are harming their own institutions, that they are alienating and driving away their own congregants or their own constituents or their own voters and supporters. Not all of them. First United Methodist wasn't empty. It was just emptier and it couldn't go on and it collapsed. That's what's happening to political homophobia in this country. It is losing fans and it is leading to the political collapse of people like Mike Pence, Governor Mike Pence, who was once touted as perhaps a national figure, perhaps a contender for president of the United States. And that is over because Mike Pence didn't get the memo. Nobody told Mike Pence in the run-up to signing this bill that there could be a price that would be paid, not by the gay couple turned away from the fucking bakery by the bigot baker, but by Mike Pence himself for signing this legislation. That didn't happen in a vacuum. People pushed, people screamed, people yelled, people got on Twitter, people launched Boycott Indiana, people contacted companies, companies responded, people made noise. So we can't be complacent when these things happen. We got to jump up, jump up and down, scream and yell, make noise. And increasingly the price when you're a homophobe, not just a private homophobe. I don't have a problem with somebody who doesn't like gay people. Really, I don't. I have a problem with somebody who believes that their dislike of gay people should be given force of law. All right. You don't have to like me. I don't have to like you. That's tolerance. Like I don't like you. You don't like me. We agree to put up with each other. So it's important to scream and yell. But it is important to remember, as these bills pass, there's one in Arkansas right now on the governor's desk that he may sign. There's one in Georgia. And like I said, there's 80 other anti-queer bills moving through legislatures in this country right now. As they pass, as we make noise, as we scream and yell, we need to remember that we are winning. Evidence is the scalp of Mike Pence, which Mike Pence himself handed us on television this weekend when he refused to answer that question whether he believes discrimination should be legal in Indiana. We are winning. We got to stay in the game. We got to stay in the fight, but we are winning. Coming up today on the Magnum and the Micro, lots of your questions plus lots of other stuff. And today on the Magnum, we've got parenting expert Amy Lang here to talk to you and me about how we talk to our kids about Fifty Shades of Grey, which we are still talking about and we will continue to talk about until I finally see that movie, which I have not yet seen. Hi, Dan. I am a female, 29, um, and this is a question about my friend. Basically, um, she's been dating this guy for about two or three years, and they're assumed to get married. She wants to get married. You know, they have the same ethical, moral, family, religious, political social values um, in life and on paper and from afar and from what you can see, they are great. Before she had said he likes um, having sexual encounters with a doll, which is totally cool and she was totally cool with it. It's his kind of thing. And the only kind of thing that she'd ever complained to me about was that like he didn't clean it properly and it kind of made the washing or their bedroom smell and she wished that he'd done it in different areas, but whatever. She was like, I can deal with it, not a big deal. And then as the relationship has progressed, things have gotten like she'd said, Hey, like, you know, I really want to get married. Can you help him with this engagement thing? And I felt slightly uncomfortable because I thought it was should be coming from him. And 
I guess the doll thing came back up that it was like still under his bed and basically long story, really kind of shorter. Um, he's preferring to have sex with the doll over having sex with her. And, you know, we're at the age where we're trying to afford apartments and I'm trying to buy something here in Vancouver, BC. And she's trying to buy something out in the Valley and was just saying, you know what, Kim, even though me and my partner don't have sex, it's not a big deal because at one point we're going to have babies. And, uh, you know, even though he doesn't initiate, it doesn't matter because I'm going to have kids and that's going to be my priority. So, you know, not a big deal. And I just want to say it is a big deal. It's a big deal that at 29, your soon-to-be quote-unquote husband doesn't want to fuck you. How do I have that conversation? How's this for a coincidence? On the way into the studio today, I was listening to a podcast. I was listening actually to Death, Sex, and Money, Anna Sale's terrific podcast that we have featured on our show and I have been featured on hers and this isn't log rolling. I'm actually, I've actually been sucked into it. I've been listening to a lot of the back episodes. Uh, and I was just listening to one called I Married the Gay Father of My Child. It's about a New York City performance artist named Lucy Sexton who married her friend, Stephen Daldry, who's an openly gay film director, uh, Brit, and so, so they could have a family because she wanted to have kids and he wanted to have kids and they wanted to do it within the structure of quote-unquote a traditional marriage. But they're very open about the fact that he is gay and she is not and that this, this marriage is about – children and it's a companionate marriage and they love each other and they support each other and all that they do, uh, but they don't fuck each other for obvious reasons. And then I've sat down here at the studio, got to the studio unplugged from death, sex and money and listen to your call. First thing, your friend needs to shut up, needs to stop sharing with you the intimate details of her partner's relationship with the creepy stinky doll under the bed if indeed she is content to live in a companionate marriage with this man who masturbates into a sex doll but has a marital relationship with her that isn't about sex. It is about parenting, companionship, and whatever else. If she is content with that arrangement and who knows if she is because if she's griping to you about it, it leads me to believe that maybe she isn't content with it. But if she is content with that arrangement to be with someone – who's going to be the father of her children and they're going to be parents together. And that is what their marriage is going to be about that partnership. If that makes her happy, who are you to tell her she's doing marriage wrong? Who are we to tell Lucy and Stephen, Lucy Sexton and Stephen Daldry that they're doing marriage wrong. Marriage is what the two people in it say that it is period. The end. So I would go to your friend and say, are you happy? Are you going to be happy in a sexless relationship? If the answer is yes, then muzzle tough and please stop confiding in me about this stuff that kind of creeps me out, right? And I'm not sure that her fiancé would be delighted to know that you know about his giant sex toy. And then tell her just get on with it. Get on with it. Marry him, have his children, live together happily ever after, teach him good sex doll hygiene practices so you don't have to endure the stank coming from under the bed, maybe move the sex doll to under the bed in the guest room, to torment your guests with its stank instead of you, but get on with it. If indeed this is the kind of marriage in which she will be happy. And if it's not, if she says that she will not be happy over the long term in a sexless marriage, then urge her either to negotiate terms with her husband that allows her to pursue sex outside the marriage. So it isn't technically sexless, even if she's not having sex with him or urge her to end the relationship, but then refuse to engage in any more conversations about it after you have spoken your piece. Hello, Dan. 
I'm calling about, well, my girlfriend. She, we've been going out since September of this previous year. Um, so only six months, I know. But um, so even though we've been going out for such a short time, in that time, some things have come up. She is Chinese. I am white. The culture is, I understand it. I actually know nothing previous to dating her myself, but she lives with her aunt, uncle, parents, and grandfather, and her all her cousins. Um, she's the only girl. And this has kind of affected things. I had the understanding that eventually she would want to move out. But it came up actually yesterday that this is not so much the case. I think traditionally people, American, uh, she's born in America, I was born in America. I think it's pretty normal to want to move out of the house, but we went on a date and it just kind of came up that she, I mean, she looked shocked when I mentioned this. We haven't had a whole lot of time to talk about this, talk of this exact issue out, but in previous um, discussions, it has come up that she wants to remain, I mean, obviously really close to them, but she has trouble standing up to them. If her grandfather, for instance, says, you can't go on a date that day because didn't really no reason. Just, just because he says so, his word is law. And to me, the fact that there isn't uh, a democratic like standing, and that's just not the way my family is. We're German. So everyone has their own say, especially because we're, um, we're in our early 20s. I'm 21. Uh, I just turned, she's 23. And it's, it's been a kind of a balancing act in a sense. I do like her a lot. She is really nice. And it's kind of difficult to find someone who's into a lot of the, um, I'm, I'm into anime and stuff. It's kind of difficult to find someone who's into that just as much as myself, but that's it. Bye. Have you heard of Rumspringa? It's something the Amish do. The Amish are raised in these very, very culturally conservative environments, the very isolated, cut off from the modern world and most modern things. No pornography, no cars, no razors, uh, but they're allowed uh, – <sighs> Oh gosh, I don't. I can't remember their actual name. Fruit boots is what I've heard some people call them. Oh, uh, inline skates. They're allowed inline skates, but not automobiles. Anyway, uh, before people get to be Amish, they're you know grown up Amish, Amish teenagers. They have this little break. It's called Rumspringer. They get a year off being Amish. I think it's a year, maybe it's a little less, where they can go out into the world and drink and smoke and fuck around and then decide for themselves if they want the modern world and all of its vices and all of its pleasures or they want to return to Amish land and live the way their parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, great-great-grandparents and everybody else lived uh, for a very long time without razors, pornography or cars but plenty of fruit boots just like great-grandpa had. It sounds to me like your girlfriend is enjoying perhaps the Asian hyper-conservative, culturally conservative, old world style uh, version of a uh, kind of Asian girl Rumspringa where she is sneaking out into the world, maybe with her family's grudging uh, consent or they're turning a blind eye and sampling the wares, having a relationship with an American whose family is very different and represents a different kind of life. And then she gets to choose and you're six ish months into this relationship. She's 23 year old grown woman. You're a grown man. And she's telling you that she's made her choice already, that she is going to continue to abide by the strictures that her family places on her, that she's not going to move out and that she is going to hew to this culturally conservative model of life and submission and obeying your elders and grandpa being the taskmaster. It doesn't sound to me like this is a girl who's going to get permission to marry her American boyfriend and run off with him and live a more equal, same egalitarian American style 
married life. So the question really here is for you, like how much more are you willing to invest in this relationship with someone who is telling you that it's unlikely this relationship will go anywhere? Now, I don't think a relationship has, as I've said a million times, has to be potentially eternal, open to long-term until death to be valid or to be something that you should pursue. You can have a wonderful short-term relationship, an STR with this girl and enjoy your shared uh, pleasure and I think he said anime and enjoy the time that you do have together before she allows her family to order her to end this relationship and get serious and marry someone from her own community and her own culture and settle down. That person is unlikely to be you and you should have an honest conversation with her about that. If you are thinking at 21, which is probably too soon to be thinking it, I would like to be with this person forever. Throw that on the table because if forever isn't a possibility with her, and she tells you that, then you have a decision to make about whether you want to continue to enjoy the time that you do have together so you can look back on it and remember it fondly forever or you want to get out there and find a brand new anime-obsessed girlfriend who isn't under her grandfather's thumb. Hi, Dan. I'm a 31-year-old straight female from the East Coast, and I just got into grad school in Western Canada, which is great. Um, but my boyfriend of a year and a half won't be moving to Canada because he loves his job and it's difficult to move up to Canada uh, without a visa. Um, but we don't want to break up. However, long distance doesn't seem to be the best move. We both tried and totally failed at other long distance relationships in previous, uh, in the past. So I actually brought up having an open relationship um, because I think it would make us less lonely uh, and then also less likely to break up because it would remove any external pressure and need for physical closeness. But I was wondering how this would work practically because I want us to be primary partners and talk about our day and what makes us close and what I would think makes uh, any couple close in a long distance relationship is the important stuff that happens in your life. And I would consider, like for me, a hookup thrilling and interesting and a huge like life event. And if I didn't share it with my partner, I wouldn't be filling him in on a significant part of my life. But I'm pretty sure he wouldn't want to hear about it. Conversely, I wouldn't really want to hear about his encounters. But I also recognize that they would be pretty significant for him. So my question is, if maintaining a long-distance relationship is all about communicating significant life experiences, should newly practicing non-monogamous share their other sexual experiences? If I follow you correctly, caller, what you're saying is uh, you want to have an LDR. You would both be more comfortable not disclosing uh, any hookups that you have with other people um, as they're happening or in the immediate wake of those hookups happening, but you feel that you ought to disclose those things to each other. But you would both be happier and probably more content in this LDR, long-distance relationship, open while you're apart, if you didn't. Well, then don't. Don't disclose those things to each other. Yes, it's good if two people are together and they feel comfortable telling each other anything, but that doesn't mean you must tell each other everything. As it happens, maybe you can have an agreement that you're going to be apart for however long you're in grad school. You're going to get together as often as you can. You're not going to disclose any 
hookups or relationships that you guys have while you're apart. But you will one day get drunk when you're back together and everything's hunky-dory again and you're in the same town and have a long weekend where you get drunk and you swap stories. And that way you won't be tormented in the moment by thoughts of him with who he's with now or you with who you're with now and he won't be tormented by those. And doing it that way doesn't mean you're doing open relationship, long-distance relationship wrong. You're doing it the way it will work for you. There is no objective standard. There is no board of certification for long-distance open relationships that will deny you guys your application if you indicate that you're not going to disclose immediately or potentially ever what you guys got up to while you were apart. So let go of that. Let go of that. This is the way it ought to work and think about what would work best for you too. Listen to what he's saying. Listen to what you're saying. Look at how you both are feeling and do that. Do what feels right for you. Don't be tortured by some hoary ideal about how you're supposed to tell some of this person everything. Sometimes love isn't always about what you disclose or that you disclose everything, but sometimes about what you withhold and why. And this is something that for now you're going to withhold. All that said, I want to jump back to the beginning of your call and address when you said that you've both tried long-distance relationships in the past and they failed. This is one of those bizarre double standards. It's like people saying, oh, you know, I tried the non-monogamy thing and the relationship didn't work out. Therefore, non-monogamy is terrible and never works out. And we don't apply that same standard to monogamy. Oh, I tried a monogamous relationship and it didn't work out. Therefore, monogamy doesn't work out. And, you know, this long-distance thing, it didn't work out for you. Therefore, it can't work ever. Well, I'm sure you've had – near-distance relationships or very close-by relationships that didn't work out. But you wouldn't look at those and say, obviously, having a relationship with someone who lives in the same time zone as I do or in the same town or the same apartment, that's terrible. That's a recipe for disaster because, look, all my nearby relationships have failed. The, the long-distance relationships that you were in the past didn't work out for lots of reasons, perhaps including the pressure of long-distance. That doesn't mean that this long-distance relationship won't work out. That's a kind of tragical thinking that people apply to non-standard relationship models. We hold them to this weird and bizarre and different – those same-sex relationships, they never work out. Long-distance relationships, they never work out. Open relationships, they never work out. Relationships based on early, sleazy, kinky meetings, they never work out except when they do. And relationships that are opposite sex and wholesome and decent meetings and close by, those sometimes fail too. But then people don't turn around and say, look – those close by, opposite sex, non-kinky, wholesome relationships never work out. Don't engage in that kind of tragical thinking about your LDR. This one could work if you keep your mouth shut. We're going to take a quick break from your calls to speak with Allison Stevenson. She's a comedian and a vice columnist who lives in Los Angeles. And last week, Allison blew up the internet with a piece she wrote for Vice uh, about the fact that she won't suck your dick. Right? <laughs> that was the point. Was it not, Allison? Not you know, not your anyone. <laughs> you just don't in, suck. In general, you don't suck dick. Yeah, uh, I famously wrote once in a column uh, that's often cited on Tumblr as evidence of my terrible, no good uh, anti-lady sexism. That in response to a guy <laughs> whose girlfriend wouldn't blow him, I wrote that oral sex comes standard. Any model that arrives without it should be immediately returned to the lot. Uh, what doesn't get mentioned on Tumblr is the, the next question in that exact same column was from a girl whose boyfriend wouldn't eat her pussy and I said the exact same thing to her. Oral sex comes standard and a metal that doesn't come without it to be immediately returned to the lot. So uh -huh. you and I should perhaps be natural enemies in this? 
<laughs> Sounds like it, yeah. But I actually really liked your column, and I don't have a problem with your no recip, as the kids on the internet call it, position on oral <laughs> sex. But what seemed to anger the whole – because you're very upfront about it. This is what I want. This is what I will do, what I won't do. But what blew up the internet was you expect guys to eat your pussy, the same guys whose dicks you won't suck. Can you explain why that is? Um. Yes. Uh, basically, um, because I think also what confused a lot of people was like, I mentioned a current situation I have now where I have someone who like comes over and, you know, gives me, uh, what I need and doesn't really get anything in return. And that I think kind of just confused people. Um, but like, okay, wait, wait, like you're, ideal... you're being, you're being too delicate. You have a guy who comes over to your house, eats your pussy and that's it. That's yeah. all he gets. He gets to eat I, your pussy. I sit on his face usually. Mm -hmm. Does he get naked? Does he get to jack off while you're sitting on his face or does he go home with a heart? Sometimes if he wants to, but I don't really, you have nothing to do with this. I mean, I should dick. preface that I tend to go for more like submissive men and things like that. So it's kind of more like, uh, but this makes him happy. It's not like he leaves your house sobbing. Right. It's not like he's forced. He's under no obligation. He's not like chained in my basement. Like <laughs> this is something he chooses to take part in. It's not like, I feel like so many people thought I hadn't, had him kidnapped and locked in my closet. They're like, oh, I feel so bad for him. And it's like, uh, you know, he's doing this on his own. <laughs> it's not, <laughs> he's much stronger than me. I can't really uh, force him to do anything he doesn't want to do. <laughs> You're not holding his, um, in, his in mother and father hostage somewhere and he has to Right, there's no ransom. Your... There's no blackmail. <laughs> uh, 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 okay, so why is it that you won't suck dick? You want oral, but you don't want to well, give oral. I, I want it because I feel like I need it. Um, I, when I'm in like a traditional, you know, whatever relationship with someone, we're having sex. And when we have sex, I don't come. I never orgasm from mm -hmm. having a penis inside my vagina. Um, but the penis does <laughs> nine times out of 10. So I just need a way for me because I personally feel like sex is best when I orgasm. And I want to have an orgasm. And I've had a lot of sex where I was not getting orgasm. You selfish monster. I know. <laughs> now, all those times you were having penis and vagina sex and not coming, are you touching yourself? Are you masturbating yourself while you get I fucked? I tried that. I know that that's a possibility. For me personally, it doesn't really work. I don't know how other women work with their, with their clitoris, but... Mm -hmm. For me, I really need to be focused on what's going on. Like my vagina needs full attention for things to, to go down, basically, for that grand finale. Do you enjoy penis and vagina sex uh, on its own sake, I even do. if it doesn't end in orgasm for you? Oh, yeah. No, it feels great. I love it. It's, you know, it's why I, I, I do it. Uh, I really do love it. But I, at the end of the day, like, I just want things to be equal. Like, I want to get mine, too, you know? Like, he gets to have his his orgasm. Why don't I get mine, you know? <laughs> okay, but when you say you want things to be equal, you don't mean equal time for oral. You mean just equal pleasure, however that's arrived at. Yeah, equal, basically, like, in us both getting an orgasm. Right, I'll get you off with my twat, but you have to get me off with your mouth, because that's how I get off. It, but I'm not exactly. getting you off with my mouth because I have a pussy and you can have that. Pretty much. Yeah, that's basically the formula. <laughs> uh, a million people sent me links to your column when it came out, urging me to reprimand you and order you to get out there and put a penis in your mouth um, like, right. like, like a proper young lady should. And 
<laughs> and I read your piece. Like I went to your piece thinking, oh, this must be terrible. And I read your piece like, I don't have a problem with this. I don't have a problem with with the way you conduct well, your, you. your 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 sex life because you're you're being upfront. This is what I will and won't do. And then it's opt in for the other person. This guy, yeah, is, I mean, if he's yeah. not up for it, if he, you know, and there are people out there, there are certainly guys out there who, and I've heard from them over the years, who have no interest in being blown, could take or leave blowjobs, but love to and live to eat pussy. And yeah, I mean, that's what I was shocked about was the like people were like telling me to like go die or whatever. And I'm like, it's a blowjob. Like, is it really? I don't know. Maybe I'm crazy. Maybe it's because I've never been a big fan of them, but I was like, are people really like, this mad about a girl just admitting she doesn't like and doesn't want to give blowjobs? Like, I, I think people, men, are this mad about a woman having the temerity to say something that men have said and said a, a yeah. lot. There have been tons of men over the years who wanted to be blown, who were blown, who would never eat pussy. And they were not shy about asking for blowjobs without offering oral in return. They, you know, the no recip thing is the default setting for a lot of guys around oral sex. They expect to be blown, but eating pussy is some like varsity level AP placement course that they can opt out of (laughs) and not required of. And I've gotten some really crappy excuses. Like I've asked guys in more recent years, like what, you know, I built up my confidence more and I've been like, Hey, can you, go down on me and they just say things like oh like that's that's too intimate like i've gotten that before where it's like really because you just asked me to suck your dick like how is it how oh is my it god different? that's too intimate we're having I've sex gotten that's too intimate before i let you go uh and i support you and everything that you're doing because you're being up front and guys can opt in if they don't want you know people all, everybody all you know despite my joking in my column at oral come standard people are allowed to have likes and dislikes and preferences and limits as long as everyone's up front about them and you're not abusing anyone or manipulating mm-hmm. anyone or using anyone or being a shitbag to anybody i think it's all okay right um yeah. I'm curious though about the man in your life that you wrote about very explicitly in this piece. Is he still eating your pussy? And how does he feel about the the piece that you wrote about him in Vice? You know what's funny is uh he came over like the day after it was up and uh we like we met online, we met on OKCupid, like we don't know each other that well. <laughs> like he doesn't <laughs> even know my last name. Well, I mean, now he does, but... Uh, I would tell you my last name, but that's too intimate. Now just eat my pussy. Is that how it went down? <laughs> yeah, yeah, basically. It's like, I can eat your pussy, but uh, actually knowing... Uh, being friends on Facebook would really just mean things were getting serious. Uh, so he came over the day after? He came over the day after, and I didn't mention it. I didn't bring it up. I just assumed he didn't know about it, uh, but he brought it up. And he was like, hey, uh, I think you wrote about me. And I was like... Yeah, I did. I didn't say his name or anything because uh, I don't know it. But no, <laughs> you know what I'm saying. Uh, but you, he was like, "Yeah, no." I mean, we were laughing about it. He was like, "Yeah, I read the, com- the comments and people were being really shitty." And I was like, "Yeah, I know. <laughs> That's usually what happens." But uh, did especially he, shitty for this one. Did he jump into comments? Is he thinking about writing a companion piece to yours, explaining his side <laughs> of it? Uh, I don't. I don't think he wants that kind of attention. Uh, but hey, you know, he came over, we did the stuff, he left, it was same old, same old. <laughs> uh, he's scheduled to come over again in a few days, you know, so things are fine there. <laughs> You're living the life, it sounds like. <laughs> it's, it's not so bad, it's well, not bad. And one of the things I really liked about your piece, it was the end of the piece, and, and I just want to draw attention to this, because you're a great example of it. 
you articulated what it was you want, you asked for it, and amazing, you used your words and you got it. You wanted a guy yeah. who, in, in, you know, in this interregnum between relationships, because you're not in a serious relationship with this guy or anybody else, you wanted somebody to eat your pussy. You put that on the table. You found a guy who loves to eat your pussy and doesn't want anything more. But you, exactly. but you asked for it. And so many women have a hard time asking for it, for what they want, putting it out there. And then they don't get what they want and they're disappointed. And they don't ask for what they want because they're afraid of rejection. But if you're asking yeah. for what you want from someone who doesn't want to give it to you, you want to be rid of that person. So that you can exactly. ask exactly, yeah. The next guy. I mean, I that's what I was doing for so long. I was just kind of not saying anything or speaking my mind, and I wasn't having. I was having good sex, but I wasn't having sex the way I wanted it for myself, like to be as enjoyable as it could be for me. And what what got you there? What tipped you over that edge from hoping the sex would be what you wanted to asking for what you wanted? I guess I think it's just it's a combination of things. It's finally just being fed up. And like realizing that, you know, I should just say something, just, you know, starting small, doing it here and there in little increments, but then finally just being at the point now where I'm just straight up like on the first date, like, hey, look, this is the deal, you know, uh-huh. <laughs> it, uh, it took some time. But also, I guess, like, uh, I kind of have been getting more into the world of like domination and submissive like relationships. And I think that meeting more submissive guys has kind of helped me feel more comfortable to make those kind of choices and then being more okay with it. But Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm also seeing non-submissive guys and kind of just doing the same thing and seeing how that goes. (laughs) It was just kind of like a nice, it's nice to have that, I guess for me personally, it was like a nice little, uh, I don't know, starter. (laughs) But when you did it with guys who weren't identified as submissive or that wasn't how you met, you still met with some success, right? Yeah, totally. I mean, so you don't have yeah, to, I you mean, don't have to only go for submissive guys. If you want to be the kind of woman who asks for what you want, you can ask. Oh no, not at all. For me personally, it just helped me realize like, Oh, I could do this. Like it was just like something that helped me realize like, I shouldn't be afraid to do this anymore. Um, but definitely, cause like, you know, I'm, I'm still going on dates and stuff and, uh, cause you know, I haven't found a boyfriend yet or whatever. And, uh, like I'm doing the same thing with guys who don't identify as submissive or are in that world. And I'm just doing what I, what I always, you know, I'm just saying my standard, my, my standard spiel with all of them, no matter who they are, you know? Allison Stevenson, she's a columnist at Vice. She's a comedian, Los Angeles-based. You can follow her on Twitter at JustAboutGlad, and you can follow her on Tumblr and find out about her dates and performances at NoDancing.tumblr.com. Allison, thank you so much for, for coming on the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Hi, Dan. Long-time listener. I'm a 24-year-old, heteroflexible male in a relationship with a woman 10 years older than me. We've been together for three years, and our friendship and romance has made the last four years the best of my life. We work together as musicians, and her thoughtfulness and empathetic musicianship are the hottest things about her, which is saying something. Our sex has always been great, and we found and explored one another's conventional kinks. We've been long distant since August, as we both moved from where we met. I'm pursuing another degree, and she's going back to school. We see one another about a week and a month, plus breaks. It's been hard being away. I've missed working with her almost as much as the sex. 
As she's become a student again, I've seen her eating habits and health and exercise give way to school and stress, and not being able to make music with her has further stifled our connection. I don't know if attraction is of too much importance to me, but I find myself wondering if it will be worth it to wait for her to get through school so that I can, we can have a romance back. She had said at the beginning of the distance that if I left her, she would be devastated, which I said as she repeated that on several occasions made me feel trapped, even though I wanted to be with her. I have been working out what I could do in her tiny town while she finishes her degree and I take random jobs and drive off to do them on occasion. But my future could be in Europe or any major U.S. city and that flexibility is necessary for me. Her work is easy to find really anywhere and she'd like to follow me really anywhere but that she has so much trouble moving to her new home that our relationship was the only thing she could hang her hat on. That frightens me. She looked to me to come for comfort about the effect of age on her appearance. And while I do still find her attractive, I also worry about that, whether or not I'll be attracted to her down the road. She knows that to me, a good relationship includes or allows good sex. And while she accepts that I would love to try an open relationship, she even talks about how she'd like to, might someday be comfortable with it. She isn't. I've become very good at avoiding the dangerous situations you talk about where I could encourage my little crushes or otherwise cheat on her, but a part of me really wants the sexual freedom while I'm in college. I'm scared of losing this relationship, and I'm scared I'll begrudge her the mountains of sex I fantasize I could be having. I want to make this work. I want it to work. Do I push to open this, even though you say men often regret it? You have my permission to break up with your girlfriend. Happy? That's what you need. I think that's what you call seeking, and you have it, and you don't have to forever relinquish your good and decent, arty-farty, straight boy credentials to dump this woman. You've been together four years. You had a good run. You met when you were 20 and she was 30. She's 34. You're 24. You're in very different places in your lives. You can end this relationship without even having to address the openness thing, without having to address the waning attraction for her thing, which I think is a real thing for you. You sort of slip in when you're talking about the issues that you guys are facing that now that she's in grad school, she doesn't have time for diet and exercise. Oh, and making music. Don't want to totally lose the thread of your arty connection. But that seems like it's important to you, at least now, at least at age 24, that you're with someone who's as young and hot and tight as you are. And she was that person for a while and she isn't that person anymore. And it is shallow and sad and whatever of you to take that into consideration. But people do. People do take those things into consideration. Physical attraction is important and you are, particularly at your stage of life, allowed to prioritize that. You need to be realistic about it when you make a lifetime commitment to someone eventually, someday, that gravity and time shred us all and will shred you too, mister. And so at some point when you make that kind of lifetime commitment, you will be signing up to love somebody to and through uh, the aging process and the collapsing into a puddle of wrinkly goo on the floor process. But it doesn't sound like you're ready for that yet. And you can own it and say, I guess that kind of makes me a little bit shallow, but you're 24. If you're not allowed to be a little bit shallow at age 24, when are you allowed to be a little bit shallow about things like that? And she is only 34. She will meet new men. 
She will have other relationships. And who knows? Maybe you can release each other. You can say, I want my freedom and I want to give you your freedom, whether you want it or not. And who knows where we'll both be in three or four years. We may circle back to each other. But for now, it needs to end because you don't want to do the long distance thing and you want to be free. And just a little caveat, a little asterisk. Typically, when people say they're not into the idea of open relationships now, maybe not ever, but possibly way, way off in the distant future, they're telling you they're never going to be into that idea. Most likely, 99% chance that that will never be okay with her. So if that's why you're staying, because potentially being with her would mean being in an open relationship and you could have her and others too, don't hang out waiting for that because that isn't going to happen. And double asterisk number two, people will often say to someone that they don't want to be dumped by, if you left, I would be blank. I would be devastated. I would be potentially suicidal. I would engage in acts of self-harm. I would be ruined. I would be destroyed. And it is in a way that person taking a hostage, taking themselves hostage, threatening to do themselves harm or if you should leave in a bid to get you to stay. You can't stay with someone forever because they took themselves hostage. You need to be considerate and compassionate about easing your way out of their lives, about ending the relationship. You don't want to be cruel or scalding if somebody is emotionally dependent on you or frail or vulnerable. You want to make sure if and when you dump them that you've lined up whatever support you can and you're as loving and kind and generous during the dumping as you can possibly be. Maybe give a call to their friends, let them know after it's happened that they might want to reach out to her and offer their support. But you don't have to stay with somebody forever because they put a gun to their own heads and threatened literally or figuratively to harm themselves or they would be so devastated they could go on without you. You don't have to stay forever in that circumstance. That is manipulative and dishonest in almost all cases. People say they'll be devastated. People say they'll be destroyed and they get dumped and they ain't destroyed. Usually they're fine. And a few years later, maybe even less time than that, a year later, they look back on the end of the relationship and realize that it was for their own good, too. Yeah, Dan, I'm a 41-year-old male. I've been going through a divorce and I have a 9- and 12-year-old. I've been married for 15 years. Uh, my marriage started falling apart eight years ago when my wife discovered that I was investigating bisexuality online. I was faithful to her. She wanted to leave but decided to stick it out. Fast forward four years, we ended up in an open-slash-swinger relationship. I did not pursue being bi in the beginning, but end up exploring at her prompting that she was okay with it. We explored the lifestyle and developed a couple close friends. In November, she decided she was not okay with me being bi. She said she had really tried over the years and thought she could do it, but cannot in the end. This has led to a divorce. I will have full custody of our children. My question is, do I come out to my kids since I may have romantic partners of both genders as I move forward in life? I cannot currently come out at work, so discretion is a factor there. Any input you have would be greatly appreciated. We love these questions about kids and what to tell them and how to tell them what they need to know. Joining us to have that conversation, Amy Lang. She's a sexuality and parenting expert, founder of birdsandbeesandkids.com, where parents can find help in learning how to have those kick-ass conversations that they need to have with their kids about sex. Thanks for running in. Thank you for having me. I love to talk about sex. You're a Seattle person, so we can actually have you in the studio. I know. I'm live and in person. You are. It's rare for me to be able to make eye contact with somebody that I'm talking to on the podcast. Excellent. And I appreciate it. So let's get right to this. We have a couple of problems we wanted to – a few we wanted to tackle with you today. Let's get right to this one. 
41-year-old guy, 9- and 12-year-old, he's going to have full custody. What does he tell him? Well, he needs to – I think he should slowly come out to them by making sure they know that sometimes people are attracted to men, sometimes they're attracted to women, sometimes they're attracted to both – in order to introduce that idea to them. And then as he's getting his feet wet, when he's getting starting to date again, I think he should really tell them that, you know, I'm attracted to both men and women. And so sometimes I'm going to be dating men and sometimes I'm going to be dating women. The wild card here, though, is he can't be out at work. And so there's the need for discretion. Should he come out to his kids if there's any chance that if one of them slips up, it's going to cost dad his job? What's the overlap between his kids, their social lives, the social lives of perhaps the children of his fellow employees or his bosses? Like, is it going to be a burden? You know, I would say to him, if it's going to be any in any way a burden to your kids, if you're not coming out to them, but pulling them into the closet with you and then really putting it on them to help maintain that closet for you, maybe you shouldn't come out to them yet. So I totally agree with you. And I also think that when – so I'm a married person. I've been married for a really freaking long time. How long? Uh, 22 years. Okay, you beat me by 24 I know. Months. We met at Rebar too, by the way. <laughs> oh, my God. Really? Yes, really. Rebar's a bar in Seattle. It's where Terry and I met. And you and your husband met at yeah. Rebar too. And my husband's name is Carrie. Oh, magic. A total magic. Long-term relationships out of Rebar relationships, just saying. Anyway, so if you're dating – so this is my personal belief. And remember, I'm a long-time married person. So I believe that if you're dating, you need to keep those relationships in terms of your kids on a non-sex-related level. So – as you're getting to know somebody, if that person becomes your regular steady partner and he happens to be a man and he's around your children, you have full custody. So they're going to see you interacting with these people. And so if your partner is a man, I think it's definitely important for the kids to understand that, hey, daddy dates women, daddy dates men. And if your primary partner is a man, then I think they need to know that that's what's going on. And what you can say to the kids is that this is a private Manner, matter. This is a private matter in our family. This is my romantic relationships, our life at home. And people are crazy and they think there's a problem with somebody dating a same-sex person. So I think that until the relationships become really real as opposed to just dating, he's probably fine to like kind of keep it on the down low and not trot them out as his partners. Or be vague, not actively lie, vague. not tell your kids yeah. you're straight right. necessarily. Right, right. Be vague. Be vague, but you're right. I agree with you. They but shouldn't. are you saying don't come out to your kids about being bi until there's a male partner on the scene so that he delays the point at which he has to burden his children with this information that they can't be completely open about or because kids with bisexual parents don't need to know that until their parents are in a same-sex relationship? I just think it depends on the circumstances. With this guy who sounds like his job might be at risk, if, he, if his kids accidentally blurt daddy's boyfriend in front of his boss – Mm -hmm. then there might be a problem, mm -hmm. right? So it's, it's, everything is almost always case by case, right? Like generally speaking, like if you're bi and your kids know you're bi, it's fine for your kids to know you're bi from the get-go. If that's how you've rolled, then that's fine. If your work is not at risk, if your livelihood is not at risk, then I think it's okay to be super open. In fact, I would encourage, I would encourage that. I agree. Right. I encourage right. people totally to be encourage out. That. It's particularly important for people to, who are bi to be out because the assumption – of heterosexuality or homosexuality, if you're with the same or opposite sex partner, erases bisexuality. But the onus then is on, I think, the bisexual people who are partnered with a single person to yeah. speak up lest they be mislabeled. Right. You know, it's you know, unconsciously and not maliciously by others who are going to make 
a gay or straight assumption based on your partner, right? Right. That you have to actively maintain your right. outness as a bi person or it'll right. go away. Right. And he's also – But the wild card again for me here are these kids. These kids. I know. So I think – And not because they can't have a bi dad or a bi parent, but because their bi parent they can't be out about. And what a what a nightmare it would be for your nine-year-old at 10 or 11 to – like Amy said, to blurt out daddy's boyfriend in front of somebody that she didn't know was a kid of your employer or blurts it out in yeah. front of your employer at some sort of office party and you're fired and it's on that kid's head that her parent – Lost his job. Right. Because she slipped. Right. So let's look at this. So we've got a 12-year-old and a 9-year-old. So I think they should absolutely know that there's such a thing as liking both boys and girls simultaneously. That's an okay thing for them to and they already understand. Know it. Right. They already know it, but they need to come They've seen five seconds of glee. They know it. Right. So, But it needs to come from the parent that this is a way to be. Like coming from a parent saying this is a way to be, right? This is a way to be in the world. And so I think that with a 12-year-old – a 12-year-old can, depending on their maturity, every kid's different. A 12-year-old can maintain and understand, like, this is private. Here's the deal. People are so weird. They will, like, I could get in trouble. And, you know, the other wild card in this whole thing is the mom, who clearly is not down with the it's bisexuality. Not, uh, I, I would say that maybe she was down with it. She gave it a shot. Four years, she stayed with him after he came out. As I love the way he said she caught him investigating bisexuality online. Just investigating, just Sherlock Science. Holmes of bisexuality. Science. <laughs> science. science. Yeah, I love it when people say, I'm experimenting with it's like science. Dr. Frankenstein. It's science. Um, the wife stuck around for a long time. They, they took up swinging. He, he had bisexual experiences with her uh, approval and consent. And she just decided at the end of that process that no, this you know she didn't marry somebody who was bi when she married him, mm-hmm. and this wasn't something she wanted to be with forever. Does does somebody have a right to not be with somebody who's bi if Absolutely. they're not attracted to? If that's a libido killer for a woman, Absolutely. that her husband is sucking cocks, is that legitimate? Absolutely, or? Absolutely. But the thing that's kind of got me hooked is the full. He has full custody. So that makes me wonder about the relationship with her. Mm-hmm. What went down? What went down? Anyway, so I would say, yes, they need to know about bisexuality. I would say proceed with caution about revealing your dating life. And if you want to keep your kids safe and keep them out of, you know, the secrets, secrets, keep the secret away is that he shows up with women mm-hmm. and he does the dating of the man on the down low until that becomes something that's serious and then he can't hide it anymore. And then he has to make a choice. Hi, Dan. My question pertain to how to talk with kids about Fifty Shades of Grey. I work for an after-school nonprofit in urban Northwest. We are in schools, are in the public school system. Our program is very inclusive, working uh, with the kids, their families, and the school. Um, We speak rather candidly with the kids about all of their problems, personal and academic, so I'm not surprised that they are coming to us with their questions about what they have seen in the movie and read in the books. It's kind of all they are talking about these days. I've read, personally, only the first book and have not seen the movie. I don't know if I want to, mostly because I've heard that it's not very good, and I read the first book and... It just wasn't written very well. I'm looking for a way to talk to 14, 18-year-olds that is healthy. As a father of a teenage boy yourself, I'm sure that you can imagine the tough and explicit questions myself and my coworkers are getting almost every day about this subject. 
There's a mixed bag of feelings pertaining to material in the movie amongst the adults as well in the office, and I'm hoping to find a way to discuss the topic with the kids that will satisfy their curiosities as much as I possibly can and keep them safe in their own relationships and still allow them to make up their own minds. Have you seen the Fifty Shades of Grey movie yet? No, I've only had the joy of reading two-thirds of the first one. (laughs) I haven't read any of the books. There are three of them. I haven't read any of them, and I haven't seen the movie. I feel like some sort of negligent sex writer, columnist, podcaster at this point. I read them it for research because I needed to know what everyone was talking about. Wow, terrible writing. I'm a big reader. I couldn't do it. It was just tedious and boring to me. And and I get it. I get it. I get you get what? I get why it's so hot and why mommies everywhere are devouring this crappy Bless her heart. <laughs> Book. Bless, her, bless her billions. At bless this point. her billions. Bless her opening the door. I mean, it's so great to see so many women like really like being sexual in whatever way and being open about it. And if this is what did the trick to get women to like get the rocks off, rock and roll. Rock and roll. I, I, I'm anticipating a big butt here at any second. So there's a butt. There's, I have a scold and I have advice. So okay. ready? For, I have to start with a scold. A scold for the culture or this particular caller? No. A scold, scold for this caller Okay. Um, because I want to, part of my work is working with folks who work with kids. And I help them to – and I work with before and after school programs. And one of my big problems, one of the one of the, my concerns about this call is that I'm guessing that in her job description, it does not say, you are a sex educator. Mm -hmm. And we live in an incredibly litigious culture. And so it worries me that you are interested in talking to these teenagers about this particular topic. Hang on. Is she interested in talking to the teenagers about this particular topic or are they asking her questions about it? It sounds like – it's a program where the teenagers hang out, ask the adult supervisors anything and talk about their schoolwork, talk about their relationships, talk about the culture. And this has come up. Sure. Yeah, I get that. This has come up. And so it needs to be addressed. But my concern – But I think the kids brought it up. I don't oh, sure. think the teachers oh, sure. walked in and said, sure, let's sure, talk sure, about sure, sure. S&M. No, no, no. No, the kids are asking, right? So she needs a response. I Just my concern and my scold is that this is not in your job description to be talking about sex and doing sex ed with the kids in your care because – a, it's just not safe for them to be in a position. So just imagine I have a 14-year-old boy and he comes home from school. And I am not me. I am someone who's much more conservative than me. And he comes home from being at the teen center and she, and his mom's like, you know, I'm like, hey, how'd it go? And he's like, cool. You know, there are these kids, they were talking about bondage and S&M. And I, you know what I think? I think that's just kind of weird, but I can see why people would like it. And so I'm just really curious. I want to read Fifty Shades of Grey because it just sounds interesting to me. And here I am. No 14-year-old boy is going to say, I want to read the books. They're going to say, I want to see the movie. But right, I know. But you know what I mean. Like they're <laughs> like, <clears throat> like coming home and saying someone was talking to me about bondage, talking to my kid about bondage. You know, fuck that conservative parent. And yeah, you're right. The, the, the caller and the program that she works for could get in trouble if she yeah. participated in this conversation, even if she didn't initiate it. Yes. Because some parents are crazy and litigious. Yes. But I would say to that crazy litigious parent, there are bus ads for this movie. Oh, there are. Right. There are. Yeah. Commercials oh, yeah. on television. There was a parody yeah. on Saturday Night Live this weekend. The star of the movie was the host of Saturday Night Live this weekend, the female star, Dakota Johnson. You can't expect your oh, child yeah. to move through oh, the yeah. culture in a bubble where they're not hearing yeah. about oh, Fifty yeah. Shades of Grey anywhere. And oh, you no, shouldn't no, no, go no. after your school or this 
this person who works in this after school program because they talked about it because the whole culture is screaming and yelling about this movie. Right I, now. I get that it's everywhere and that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that in this position, in this job, it's they can't be engaging in conversations about sexuality because it's not part of their job description. So that being said, they all I'm saying is A – they need to get it off the table and B, they need to have a strategy for addressing it. I agree. Kids need to hear about this and what it is. It's confusing and it's every fucking where, right? Like we have – cannot miss it. Mm-hmm. Cannot miss it. So what I would suggest to her is um, to have some conversations with the kids about what do you think about that? What do you think it means? They can't be offering opinions or guiding or giving advice because it is not their role. They need to boot it back to the parents. As shitty as that is, it is not their space to be sex educators for these kids unless those adults in their universe, the parents, have signed a waiver that says you can talk to my kid about anything. Mm -hmm. And there's a way to engage with kids about this topic that puts them – keeps them safe, like keeps them within their boundaries and gets the kids the information they need. Okay. So let's have a hypothetical here. Okay. She is doing what you said. She's being passive and not offering any information up herself. Just how do you feel about that? What have you heard about that? What do you think of that? Right? Right. That's the extent to which she participates in the conversations about Fifty Shades of Grey. That's it. And she is there as three or four kids are talking about BDSM and what they've learned about it from Fifty Shades of Grey and how it's done. Yeah. And what they're talking about, you know, one saying to the other, you really don't need somebody's consent. It's okay to break into somebody's house if you think they're into you. Um, that consent can be, you know, they're, they're basically having a conversation about BDSM minus active, enthusiastic consent as if that is the norm. And they're talking about how they might want to do it this way, that they might do this, that they want to explore this. Does she not have an obligation to say, <clears throat> speak yes. up? Yes. She has an obligation to speak up. And about the limit of her speaking up is something along the lines of, hey, A, totally understand your curiosity. B, not okay to talk about that here. C, I just have one thing to say about consent. And then she can talk about consent. Yes means yes. She can have a conversation about consent. And then if she's smart and her people that are in the pile above her, she can say, if you want to know more about this, here are some good resources. Scarlet Teen you, I'm not always a fan of teenagers listening to you, but you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not always you, a fan of teenagers listening to me either. Right. I'm constantly hearing from people who say, I started listening to your show when, when I was 14. I was and I'm like, no, oh my God, I can't have that in my head that 14-year-olds are listening to my right. show. Right, right. So Scarlet Teen, where they can go get answers to these questions, like a direct away. Okay, so you started by saying she shouldn't have these conversations at all. And now we're having a conversation about the kinds of conversations she so can So she have. can. She can only go to a certain level. Safely go to a certain level. She can't be. I don't think she was proposing to, that she was going to do BDSM sex ed. Was she? I don't know. I made me worried. I mean, it got my little like I my little worry. Okay, so we beat we beat that side said, of it to yeah. death. You said there was another. Okay, so really, basically, kids need to know about so what this phenomenon is. And, you know, depending on the age of your kid, you know, you can say something to a little kid that's like, "What is this? Like the Fifty Shades of Grey teddy bear?" Hysterical. I mean, like completely ridiculous. There were ads on NPR for the damn thing. Get your Fifty Shades teddy bear. And I just imagined these seven-year-old girls saying, I want a Fifty Shades teddy bear. What is that, mama? And the mama going, a bear. Look at the shiny thing. Like not able to respond. A bear that comes with handcuffs and a silk necktie. Because that sounds like super fun times. tie up Barbie. 
right, in the toy closet. That's a kid's toy. Anyway, um, so having conversations about this is a book and it's a movie. It's for adults. It's got some sexual stuff in it. It's not for kids. And then just building up on that. It's a book. It's a movie. It's got some sexual stuff in it. People are really into it because it's one of the sexiest, most interesting books that's come along around in a long time. It's not for kids because the sex in it is really very grown up. It can be really confusing and scary for kids to read that kind of thing. Moving along, we get to a 10, 12-year-old just going to be straight up. Assuming you follow my advice and you've been talking to your kids since they were five. And so this is an easy segue into people tie each other up when they have sex. They sometimes hit each other. It's They agree to do this. It's consensual. It's called BDSM and define it and talk about it and then and just pile on that really simple conversation. Mm-hmm. And most kids, when they hear like you get to the – sometimes people, t- they, people do all kinds of different things when they have sex together. They agree. They tie each other up. They hit each other. They burn each other with cigarettes. They clip toenails on each other. They're going to be like, stop talking. Wait, wait, clip toenails on each other? I'm sure they I do. I haven't heard of that one. I'm sure they do. I haven't heard of it in 25 years. I don't think I happened. am sure they do. <laughs> I am convinced that you can find any, anything can be sexual. I am convinced. So at that point, they're going to. Well, I have said before that if something is out, whatever exists in the world, someone somewhere is masturbating about it. That's right. Toenail clippings. Toenail clippings. Somebody's probably masturbating about it. <sighs> I actually saw a porn star who sold his toenail clippings online. Thank you. Vindicated. You win. I win. <laughs> I win. Anyway, so. What about kinky kids? A kid comes to a sex educator, a kid comes to this caller. Yeah. And isn't just like curious about the Fifty Shades of Grey phenomenon, but is one of those kinksters that you hear from who's been tying themselves up since they were 13 years old. And that kid is like, oh, now I know what I am. I'm Christian Grey. I'm Anastasia. What do you say then? What sort of information, you you know, reproductive biology, penis and vagina, missionary position, heterosexual intercourse in the context of a loving and committed relationship. That's the easy part. The things that trip people up are the – more complicated stuff mm-hmm. or unexpected stuff, mm-hmm. queerness, kink, right. sexual transmitted infections, negotiating consent. That's the hard stuff. Yeah. And for a lot of kinky kids, they fly blind into their lives when yeah. they have may have sexual interests that are going to be more challenging on the consent front and require a more thoughtful approach to consent. What do you say to them? Jillian Keenan, who's been on the show, mm-hmm. uh, a writer and a kinkster, um, has said that there are no kinky role models for kids. Should kids – have access to adult kinky role models the same way we say that queer kids should have access to adult queer role models. Yeah, for sure. And what a hard person to find, right? Because it's such a complex part of sexuality for most people. So I think a kid that says, you know, I can't, I think I have this, I think I might be like this or like, you know, discloses that kinkster, the kinkster leanings. I think that whoever they're disclosing to needs to be really, really careful just like a kid that says, I'm, I think I'm gay, really careful, really calm, have a little bit of a back and forth about it very carefully because of, A, the nature of the conversation and, B, um, blowing up at the child and saying there's something wrong with you. Like we don't want to communicate that to a kid, right? And it's not going to make the kinky kid not kinky in the same right. way blowing up at a queer kid okay, is not right. going to make it's, a queer kid not queer. Right. It's not going to get anywhere. So, I mean, at that point, I would say I recommend that that adult say, you know what, I, I think there's probably a resource for you, but I need to figure out what it is and I'll get back to you and, and that then bring them the resource. And should go by the book Loving Someone Kinky. And Scarlatine is also a good place to send those sort of kinky young kids because it's a kink – you don't want to say positive because it's not evangel it's not evangelizing for kink, but it is kink affirming for the kids who are kinky. Friendly. Yeah. Kink kink, kink friendly. Kink One more call? Yes, please. Oh hi Dan. 
I was wondering if you had any advice for parents who have been busted by their kids having sex. Um, my wife and I almost literally just got busted by our six-year-old who just walked into the room stupidly. We didn't have it locked. Uh, we got carried away. And, uh, yeah, the sex we were having wasn't exactly vanilla missionary sex. It was a tad graphic. And uh, the six-year-old copped an eyeful uh, before we realized that she'd walked in the door. After freaking out for a little bit, we're just wondering, I mean, we put it to bed, we told her, you know, well, this is mum and dad having fun, but just curious, how does, what's the best way, or if you've got any expert friend with any advice for what's the best way to handle giving your daughter a complete eyeful, we'd love to hear it. Okay, I'm going to tell you what happened to me, very similar to what happened to the caller, and then you tell me what I should have done, and I'll tell you what I did do. Okay. So, uh, Terry and I are having sex, and completely sex, like full, like pounding away sex. And we look up and realize that our son is standing in the room and we're not sure exactly how long he's been standing in the room and what should we have done? How old is he? Two. Whatever you did was fine with a two year old. Oh, whoops. Hey, just having a private moment. So we screamed at him and spanked him and put him in bed without supper. You are going straight to hell. Oh, I so, mean, we, so we did the wrong else, thing then. <laughs> everything else you've done in your life, that was the thing that's sending you straight to hell. No, no. What we did, what we did. I just I just wanted to take advantage of this. Whatever you did, it was the right thing to do because he was two. Because I'm sure there was something I could have done wrong. I just leapt off Terry and said, I was just saying good morning to daddy. Which then became a euphemism for sex. Just saying good morning to yeah. daddy. Two-year-olds do not have long memories, so he probably was like, what the, what the is going on here? And then you're like, oh, just saying good morning to daddy. And Let's make escort. waffles. That's exactly. that For the two-year-old, like the three and under set, you can pretty much get away with that. With a six-year-old, little different. So, um, of course, I'm dying to know what it was that they were doing, but we're not going to know that. Um, so I would say with a six-year-old, I'm just going to kind of back up. First of all, she should know what sex is. She does know what sex is, most likely. Well, uh, probably seen it on media. Probably seen it on in a in a no in the like P goes in the V. This right. is the usual thing. Like my guess is she probably does not know what sex is, but maybe she does. This person sounds like he's not from the United States, so chances are higher um, <laughs> that uh, she does. So first of all, if she does not know what sex is, um, then she needs to know what sex is, and the best way to do that is to get Roby Harris's book. It's so amazing. And it covers this topic in a beautiful, sex-positive way. Um, so it sounds like you did it. Just you did a great job of just getting her out of your bedroom and tucking her in. We're just having special time together. Whatever you said, that was totally fine. Um, the nice thing about her being six is that she's not. She was not twelve. If she were twelve, she would know exactly what was going down, and it would be probably traumatic because a twelve-year-old really knows what sex is and knows like ick, gross. Because really, nobody wants to think about their parents having sex, right? Mm-hmm. Your son is not going to remember that, by the way. So he's not going to think about you guys having sex for the picture. And he's an adopted child. He could go through life pretending we've never had sex. Right. It's not like he looks in the mirror awesome. and sees the product of our sexual congress. Right. Right. He just thinks we're good friends. Yes, you're good friends that share a bed amongst other things. Okay. <laughs> um, so with your daughter moving forward, what I would do is I would definitely get Roby Harris's book. I would read it with her. She has a section where she talks about um, intercourse and and making love. And she says that most of the time people have sex because it feels good to their grown-up bodies, essentially. And so 
depending on your daughter, she may, and in that moment, that's going to be the moment for you to say, and, you know, the other day when you walked in on us, mommy and I were having a private moment. We were making love. People make love and it looks all kinds of different ways. It's a private thing. It can be kind of weird for kids to see. Every parent should anticipate this. This happens to every parent at some point, right? Yeah, the kid walks pretty into the room. much, right? And also, let me just back up the truck. Congratulations. So glad you're getting it on. I mean, that's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Small children and still having making time for crazy kinky sex. Okay, good. So that's all good. So um, just very carefully just drop that little people have sex. Your mom and I, we were making love and it looks kind of crazy because it's not for kids and it's private. So we're sorry that you came in then, do you have any questions? And she might be like, why was mommy tied up? And you can just say, oh, that's just something we do. Hey, look at this section all about the sperm. And so you just do a little redirect. Um, depending on your reaction, which sounds like it was really calm, she's not going to be scarred for life, um, is my guess. Uh, but you really want to make but sure. But you might be. You might be. That's, that's the irony yeah, in yeah, this. Your kid walking irony. in on you kind of scars you for life. The kid's fine. Yes. And you yes. for years are like, every I time you I think know. about it. So time for door lock. Um, time to have, and I would suggest you role play with this, this with her. You have a um, knock first policy. So if the door is closed, you knock, you knock first and wait to be asked to come in and then just practice that with her. It works both ways. If she's in her bedroom alone, children do not need to be in, when they're together. The door should be open because all kinds of antics happen. Just practice. Knock first. Can I come in? No. You don't go in. Knock knock again. Can I come in? Yes. And then practice that. And then that's the rule in your family. If the door is closed, you knock first. And you should also be going to birdsandbeesandkids.com sexuality and parenting expert Amy Lang's website where you can learn more about what you should and should not fucking do. Right. Thank you so much for coming in today. It was a real pleasure chatting. Super fun. Thank you. Hey, Dan. Question for you. I am a young lady in my early 20s living in a college town. For some extra cash on the side, in addition to my real job, I work as a nude model for the art classes at the university. This semester, all of my shifts have been with the same professor, and he is smoking hot, like such a babe, I can't even handle it. I went to his RateMyProfessors.com page, and literally all of the reviews are previous students talking about how unbelievably sexy he is. He has this laser pointer that he carries around with him, and he basically spends the entire class period using it to point out different parts of my body to his students, and it's driving me wild. I'm recently realizing that I'm a little bit kinky, so finding myself in this position where this very attractive man who is almost twice my age is telling me what to do and running a laser pointer all over my naked body in front of a group of like 30 people, one of whom is my neighbor, is making me go a little crazy. I'm dying over here. I want to fuck this professor so badly, and I don't know what to do. Um, after working in his class for a handful of shifts, he has invited me to model for him privately uh, at his studio for his personal work, which, of course, I said yes to, but here's the catch. He's married, of course. There's just not really a socially acceptable way to ask, like, hey, so are you in a wife monogamous? Especially when what we have is a professional relationship where I am technically his employee. So what do I do? 
do I test the boundaries by being flirtatious when modeling at his studio? Do I use my grown-up words and say, like, hey, I find you really attractive. I know you're married, but do you ever want me to get naked in a less professional context? Do you have my number? Do I say that now? Do I wait until our professional relationship is over? Is that something I can email him about, or do I say it to his face? Help, Dan. I've never been in this position before. Any advice you have would be great. There are two questions you need to answer before you fuck this guy, if you fuck this guy. Uh, Question one, does this guy want to fuck you? He's invited you to his studio to model for him privately. Uh, That seems like a come up and see my etchings kind of play. So probably, maybe, maybe he wants to fuck you. You'll find out perhaps when you get there. Whether he wants to fuck you. When he makes a pass at you, then you will know. That question will be answered. Does he want to fuck me? He made a pass at me. Yes, he wants to fuck me. Then the question becomes, should you fuck him? And what does his wife think? I guess there are three questions. Maybe he's in an open relationship. Maybe that's what he's going to tell you when he hits on you, that he's in an open relationship when you ask about whether this is okay with his spouse. He may tell you that they have a DADT relationship where they're both allowed to do whatever they want to with other people so long as it's discreet and they have a don't ask, don't tell and it can be only in circumstances where the spouse isn't going to find out or be tortured by it. And that's a legit thing. There are a lot of people out there who have these sort of monogamish, squishy understandings around outside sex only happening occasionally and very discreetly and them not being told about it. The the problem with that kind of arrangement is there's no way for the third to verify that. You just have to take his word for it. And in that moment, you have to weigh your desire versus his boner versus whether or not he's telling you the truth and then make a choice about whether you're going to fuck him. But who knows? Maybe he and his wife have an open relationship and it's all above board and honest and she's going to wander through the studio as you fuck him. Or maybe he wants to have a three-way with you and his wife. There's all sorts of questions that can only be answered by him in the moment after he hits on you at his studio, which he probably is going to do. This goes on a lot. This is debated hotly in many quarters. What are the responsibilities of a third? The third. The person who knows that the man or the woman hitting on them has a spouse or a partner at home. What are your responsibilities? Do you have to verify that it's an open relationship? If you verify that it's an open relationship – do you have to verify that indeed it is an open relationship? If it's a DADT arrangement, if that's what they tell you, is it okay to go ahead and do that knowing that in some cases people who say it's DADT are lying? And is it okay ever for a third to sleep with someone when they know that they're cheating on their partner, that the person they're sleeping with is cheating? And you know, since I believe there are certain circumstances under which it's okay to cheat, where cheating is the least worst option, I of course feel that there are certain circumstances under which it's okay to be the third the outside person who is enabling the cheating. That is the least worst option and may indeed in some certain circumstances save the relationship that the committed person is in and committed to. So there's a lot of moral – a lot of ambiguity here, a lot of nuance, a lot of gray area, things you're really going to have to wrestle with at the moment this guy hits on you. At a moment when he will be thinking with your dick and you will be thinking with your twat – So I encourage you to think about it in advance. And if your position is you will not enable an infidelity, you will not participate in an infidelity, then maybe you shouldn't go model for him at all because the flesh is weak and the laser pointer is strong. And in that moment, when he hits on you, your morals and ethics around not enabling cheating may fly out the window as his dick flies into you. Good luck. Hi, Dan. I'm calling with a comment about your rant in the beginning of episode 439. Obviously, it is extremely disturbing that it is even an issue which restroom a transgender person uses. 
And I fear more violence against transgender women and men if this law is passed. It's truly insane to think that trans women are just disguising themselves to sneak into the women's room to violate people. Although I really love the idea of people giving their pee and why not poop to Debbie Riddle to safely dispose of, maybe another option would be to encourage business owners to remove the male-female bathroom signs from their doors, especially if they have single-stall restrooms. I really don't think it should matter, even if they aren't single-stall, but clearly not everyone agrees. If the restrooms are not gender-specific, then no one can get arrested for just needing to go pee. Hi, Dan. I'm calling in response to the Australian lady in episode 439. Uh, Everybody's trying to come up with these convoluted reasons why these guys sexed her, but not come over and have sex with her. And the explanation to me seems pretty obvious. Uh, These OkCupid guys probably have girlfriends and wives that they did not tell Australian lady about. So, yeah, it's it's easy to, like, sex somebody in the house with your girlfriend there, but it's less easy to, say, like, leave the house at 1030 at night without the girlfriend saying, hey, where are you going, right? So, yeah, I think that's pretty much it. Uh, This is some follow-up for The Australian on top of the show that was recorded in L.A. I think if she wants to have a regular thing with her buddies, she should say to them, all right, George, uh, how's Monday night for you? Can you make every Monday, say? And then, uh, Billy, can you make every Wednesday night? Because you wouldn't expect someone to come to dinner if you said, oh, come to dinner anytime. What you'd say is come to dinner at Wednesday at 11 o'clock or whatever, and that's how it works. So perhaps if she was a bit more definite and got them to commit to some days, then they would also appreciate that. Just a little bit more structure. Uh, I wish her all the best. We're going to leave it there. Before we let you go, Hump, the Pacific Northwest's biggest, best, and only amateur porn film festival curated by me, is coming to Chicago April 17th and 18th and Cleveland April 25th. We're going to be at the Music Box Theater in Chicago on those dates and at Cleveland Cinema Tech on the 25th. Go to humptour.com for tickets and info and upcoming cities also. Quick shout out to Adnal who tweeted, sitting in a minimally acceptable dumpling restaurant in the Beijing Railroad Station listening to this week's Fake Dan Savage, Savage Lovecast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening in Beijing. Always use the hashtag Savage Lovecast so we can find your tweets about the show. 206-201-2720 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a question or comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-201-2720. Follow me on Twitter at Fake Dan Savage. Follow Amy Lang on Twitter at Birds and Bees. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at risk you We'll all be back at you with another installment of the Savage Lovecast next week. Thanks for downloading.